Again, we're going to be reading Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. And as we read, remember that this is God's word. He will, ten, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Thank you, Mark. He said, my name is Josh. I'm the director of students here. For those of you who are part of this church and have been for a while, you know that way back when we uh, decided to raise some money and you guys brought me on full time. And that starts July 1st, so I just want you all to know. Um, no, just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Stop, 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 stop. Um, and I just, Friday was my last day at Tempe High School, so I won't be teaching math anymore. It's kind of bittersweet. I cried a bunch and said bye to a bunch of students I love. But I'm glad to be here full time, which means you're going to see a lot of me bad news for you. And the first uh, thing I'm going to do now as a almost full-timer is I'm going to teach on judgment. Luke normally gets up here and he's kind of our main communicator. And last time we got to a tough passage in Romans, it was the wrath of God. And Luke left and brought in Tyler Johnson. And now it's the judgment of God. And Luke's nowhere to be found and I'm up here teaching you about the judgment of God. So judgment is tough. Some of us don't believe it. Some of us don't want to believe it. Some of us don't want to experience. It's just tough. It's a tricky deal to talk about the judgment of God, especially in our society. Westerners don't like to be told what to do. They definitely don't like to be told that at the end of them doing what they want to do, they're going to be judged. It's tricky. It seems dated. It seems like it's a medieval concoction to scare a bunch of just ignorant people who aren't as educated as us, high school diplomas and college degrees, and we watch CNN. I mean, we're smart people. We're educated. We don't need this judgment. That's for the idiots of days of old. It doesn't satisfy, this is a big one, it doesn't satisfy any felt needs. No one walked in today. I need to hear on the judgment of God. That is my deep burning passion right now. I must hear on the judgment of God. You walked in, your kid was a turd, and you walked in thinking, I hope that Mark does his job and my kid comes out of kids ministry better than when he went in. (laughs) And my wife is a nag. I hope that she hears this message and she stops. My finances are horrible. I hope something I get fixes them. Nobody's here for the judgment of God, but surprise, that's what we're all going to get. You can thank Luke and the Apostle Paul, so let's do this thing. God's Righteous Judgment. That's the title. If I had to break it down, it goes like this. God's righteous judgment is coming. It's comprehensive. And it'll be complete. God's righteous judgment is coming. It will be comprehensive. And it will be complete. So that's where we're going today. We're going to be in Romans here. 2, 6 through 11. I had some buddies over on Monday night just to hang out and talk, and I was telling one of them, yeah, I'm preaching on the judgment of God, and this guy, Carrillo, some of you may know him, he said, yeah, that's right up your alley. I was like, 
I don't know how to take that. Judgment of God, and that's right up your wheelhouse. I'm guessing it's either I'm very judgmental and harsh and lack grace, or what I'm assuming he meant. This is kind of a nuanced, tricky theological truth. We need the best up there, so. (laughs) This is right up your alley, Watt. Thanks, Mike. So let's do this. This is a nuanced, tricky, biblical truth. It's going to leave some of us kind of edgy for a bit, and hopefully we clear it up and we leave loving Jesus more now than we did when we came in. Judgment is coming. If you are in Romans, go back to verse 5, just a smidgen, so we can set this thing up. So we're going to do Romans 2, 5 through 6. Judgment is coming. Verse 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, that's an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. If I were to preach this ten years ago when I first got saved, I would have hounded on this and I would have been jumping at you guys and I would have had flame going behind me and I would have drilled it. But there's no need to do that. The The weightiness of the text speaks for itself. I don't need to scream and shout and point fingers. The text says, he will render to each one according to his works. The word of God says, he, Jesus, will render, will judge each one, you, 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 according to to our works. Yikes. This is a big deal. I've preached a few times here, and it's been interesting. I think last time I preached on the younger generation coming up, but like four or five times, no lie, I've been over there after I preached, and someone's come up to me to address the judgment of God. Like on passages that have nothing to do with the judgment of God. Talking about the youth, and they really need to get their act together and go back there. So, Josh, about the judgment of God, it weighs heavy on some people. Some of you come in bogged down with guilt and shame and remorse, and a pending judgment of God is the last thing you want to hear. But here's what it says. It is coming. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at three passages, go back to Romans, and then finish in Romans. So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 2. It's page 2 if you have the Black Bible. This is a coming reality. So before we jump into the how of judgment, I want to make sure that you know this isn't just a flippant statement by Paul. This is the theme of all of Scripture, that God is going to judge. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. When I'm teaching, a lot of times I like to say, what's the first promise in the Bible? God loves me. I'm awesome. The first promise in the Bible, when you eat of it, you shall surely die. God starts his interaction with humanity after creating with a promise of judgment. Fast forward, if you have your black Bibles, go to page 819. Let's look at Matthew. Let's see if Jesus can soften the blow of this a little bit. So this is Matthew 13, 47 through 50. 
Such a good sound. Bible's being turned. Page A19, Matthew 13, 47 through 50. So we just looked at Moses speaking on behalf of God, talking about judgment coming. Jesus now speaking to the people around him. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered the fish of all kinds. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus doesn't soften the blow at all. In fact, he unpacks it a little more and he gives us an illustration. Fish seems kind of like a weird one, but you get the point. At the end of the age, everything will be collected. And there will be two buckets. A good bucket and an evil bucket. The evil bucket will be thrown then into the lake of fire. Happy Memorial Day. Go to Revelation 20, please. It's page 1040, and this is the last time I'll have you turn. But I want to see this with our eyes in the Word of God, that this idea of judgment flows throughout all of Scripture. So Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It gives a picture of things to come. It's a revelation into the future. And this is how they describe the final judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him, Jesus, who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Jesus is sitting on a throne and his weightiness, his glory is going out. It's a big moment. Then I saw the dead Great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. The dead, great and small, our bodies will be resurrected at this point to stand in judgment. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What does this verse, along with the others, tell us about judgment? Jesus is the judge that will judge at the end of time. All people, great and small. Great doesn't mean big or tall. Small doesn't mean little. It means all people, regardless of the significance you had in this world, will be judged. Hitler will be judged. Your house cleaner will be judged. Your second grade teacher will be judged. I will be judged. My wife will be judged. Every person, great, small, however you want to phrase it, will be judged. We will be judged in our bodies. We will be in our bodies, standing before God, giving an account of what we did while we were in this earthly body. 
And here's just the thing that weighs heavy on me that the Bible talks about a lot. Books are being kept on all of us. And not like Cliff Notes version. Like extensive Joshua James Watt, here's your life. Have you ever seen Liar, Liar? Um, Jim Carrey, he meets God and he goes to open his basically cabinet of his life and it like goes on forever. He's like, this is my life? Yes. That's going to be our life. Sheet one. It's intense. We, We just don't have a spot in our brain to think through this. Very few of us have ever dealt with this sort of judgment. As I try to think about what it's like, I can think of two instances in my life that kind of relate. One is a physical. You go in, and they poke and prod and stick and take blood and look at every aspect of your physical well-being. You may think you're healthy. You may think you're not. When you're done, they tell you exactly what's going on with your body. It's horrible. I said, Josh, you have high cholesterol. I'm like, I'm 27. Well, you have high cholesterol. Shut up. We will be judged. Let's do this thing. Now, if you're kind of new to church, new to trying to feel out this God thing, the idea of judgment may be the most offensive thing that you could come and hear about. I wanted to hear about God. He loves me. He wants to cradle me like a baby. And you're telling me that he'll be standing with a gavel ready to pronounce judgment on my life. How is that helpful? How is that beneficial? How does that help me? How does that secure my heart and my emotions and my anxiety? Here's what one author that we all like to read and listen to, Tim Keller. He's the best when it comes to talking about hard truths in this society. And his point is this, when talking about judgment. If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and I will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. You get what he's saying? This is a hard truth, but if you take this truth out of your sphere of reality and say, I'll be the judge, then you have to take up the sword and you need to fight your battles for yourself. That's anarchy. You've got to go to battle for yourself. Women in horrible marriages, you've got to fight for yourself, and that's going to get ugly quick. You get what he's saying? If I have the backdrop that God will one day meet every individual face to face, then I can rest, and I can forgive, and I can live in peace and harmony. If you take that away, you're in charge, you go handle business. So judgment is necessary. It's a truth, but it's also a necessary truth, even to the most skeptical brain. Make sense? Like I said, we needed the best up here. Let's do this. Let's unpack this. Just kidding. The second part is going to be very, very offensive to some of you, which I'm fine with. And I hope by the end, you kind of walk out of here saying, I get it now. Next section is, how will God judge? And this passage says, God's judgment will be comprehensive. Comprehensive coverage covers everything. His judgment will cover it all. So let's read into the next section here. Verse 7. 
Apostle Paul talking, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, some of you read that and you think, that makes sense. That's what religion is. You do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you get wrath. This is a tricky passage. But first, I want you to see that he is really judging us according to our works, comprehensively. Here's what he's going to judge. Our motives, our actions, and then our rewards are going to be given accordingly. What does he say here for the first group of people? To those who by patience and well-doing, verse 7. Another uh, passage says, uh, in perseverance in doing good. It's this idea of plodding along in goodness and faithfulness before God. That's your motive. What are your actions? You seek for glory, honor, and immortality. You read that and you're like, I read it to my wife last night. She's like, I don't know what that means. Some of you are like, it sounds churchy. It does. Here's how I'd unpack it. Right motive would be patiently doing good. Your right actions are your life is marked by seeking glory, honor, immortality. I'll say it in different words. Seeking the fullness of God, glory. Seeking the fame of God, you're striving to make God more famous and more known in your own heart and those around you. And immortality, seeking a future with God. More and more, your thoughts, your desires, your daydreaming is heavenward. What are you going to get? You will get eternal life. If you patiently do good, seeking the fullness of God, the fame of Christ, a future in heaven with him, you will get eternal life. What's the other side get? Remember, there's only two buckets. The other one says, those who are self-seeking, so what's the motive of the other group? Your entire life is marked by self-seeking desire. That could look like Hitler, or that could look like a housewife with seven kids whose heart is always turned inward. Self-seeking, your life is bent towards you. What are your actions? You do not obey the truth, verse 8, but you obey unrighteousness. You reject truth. In your desire to fulfill yourself and to think about only yourself, you've rejected all truth given to you, and your life is now marked by following after unrighteousness. What shall you get? Bucket B. There will be wrath and fury. You do any sort of study, it's a lake of fire, gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment. The Bible right here is saying one group will get eternal life in heaven. The other group will get eternal torment in hell. Man. Who brought you here again? Why would they do this to you? Here's what I want to be crystal clear on. Two things that I think will help ease any tension. First of all, we need to know what Paul is actually saying here. Like, what? So you're going to teach me what he's saying. Yes, that's why I'm up here. But what he's actually saying, because there's two options of what he could be saying. And the other question I think is the most important thing to ask in just about any setting is how are we reading this incorrectly given our backgrounds? So we all have these worldviews, these systems of thought that are built up through time 
and we read that, we impose that on everything we do in this world. So how is your particular background imposing its will on this passage here? Does that make sense? First question, what is Paul actually saying here? Here's the two options. Either Paul is being hypothetical. Champ, you know what hypothetical means? I think it's in two people. All right. That's going to be a tough one. Hypothetical. Not a literal situation. It happened with Jesus. The rich young guy came up to him, thought he was the stud, thought he had it all figured out. He's a rich young ruler. And he says, what must I do? I want to go to heaven. And Jesus says to him, obey my commandments. That's hypothetical. Jesus isn't literally telling him, you want eternal life, go read the Ten Commandments, do them, and you will get heaven. Jesus is trying to create some tension. Well, do everything that I've told you to do perfectly. To which you should have said, it's impossible. He responded, done. I've already done that, Jesus Brutal. Jesus says, sell everything you have. Hypothetical again. You don't need to sell everything you have to get to heaven. Hypothetical. Is that what Paul's doing here? Is he setting up this hypothetical, yes, there's going to be a judgment, and the only possible person who would ever face judgment and leave it with rewards and eternal life and eternal bliss and peace would be someone who could live like this. I would say that's not what he's saying. This isn't a hypothetical. Two reasons I'd say this is not. He is literally saying, you, sir, you, ma'am, you, ma'am, are going to stand before God, and he's going to judge you on your actions. Here's why I say it's a literal thing. The whole Bible speaks of this day. It's a thread going throughout all Scripture. It's called the great day of the Lord. When all rights will be rewarded, all wrongs will be punished. This is the theme. So it sounds goofy and evil of God to create this hypothetical situation and bounce it all throughout Scripture for us to like, be confused on. It's a literal thing, literally going to happen. The other reason is the Apostle Paul, last week if you were here, it was about judging others. And his whole thrust is, Verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The whole point of Paul is saying, the rewarded life at the end of time is not one that is perfect. It's a life marked by repentance and good works done in faith. This is a literal thing. And I know it sounds like I'm harping on it, but I need to. Every one of you is going to face this day. You need to know how this goes down. Here's the other thing. How are we reading this incorrectly given our backgrounds? Here's four groups of people. I told the first service, if you're not in this group, shout at me and I'll throw you in here. First group is the gospel-centered people. You are gospel-centered. You believe that justification, church word, you being made right with God has happened because of Jesus. And when you take communion, you are thanking Jesus for what he's already done. Gospel-centered crowd. All of life, all for Jesus, gospel-centered. You know, you get it. You got the tattoos. The second group, Christians with a works-based theology, which is a big portion of you. My wife grew up in a denomination where they taught you could lose your salvation. That's wrong. 
People are going to be punished for teaching others that philosophy, that theology. That's wrong. So you're reading this into it, and you read it, and you say, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to get rewarded based, what I, based off what I've done, and people are going to be punished for what they've done. I get that. So I'm going to do as best as I can, and I'm going to work hard for Jesus. Some of us who see Christianity that way through our works and God approving of them. Third group is non-Christians who think all religions are basically the same. I hope to show you that that's far from being true. And then my heart goes out to this group of people. This is why I'm in ministry. Non-Christians who are hoping that Christianity is unique. Like you're here because you're hoping that this Bible says something different than the Koran. Which tells you to be good and you'll get rewarded. I hope that it's not based on me. Bible, preacher man, redemption church, tell me it ain't so. Tell me this book's not like the rest. There's that group of people. And I hope to satisfy your heart in this section. So here's what I want to do. Make sure we're all on the same page. I don't have a slide for it, but if you're taking notes, we're going to walk through the idea of justification and judgment. Just a quick little justification is when you are made right with God. Some people say it's just as if I have never sinned. So justification is when your guilt is removed. Judgment is when we stand before God, all of us, and then he looks at our works to assess that guy was justified or that guy rejected me his entire life. We on the same page, so let's walk through this. Hopefully this is helpful. What's the difference between justification and judgment? First thing, justification is private. I got saved at a camp. I just looked at this guy holding his kid. I'm like, I want that. I want God to cradle me like that little two-year-old and never let go of me. And in my heart, I gave my heart, my soul, the rest of my life to Jesus. Justification is a private. That doesn't mean if you've done it in public, ah, shoot, I need to go in this corner over here and redo it. It just means it's an interaction between you and God in the spiritual realm. Where judgment is a public event. The Bible says we're going to judge angels, us believers. The Bible in Revelation talks about God being on the throne and 12, 24 helpers. This is a public event at the end of time where every deed is going to be brought forth and it's going to be approved or disapproved. It's public. Justification, I hope this is good news to you, can happen anytime, anywhere. Whenever you're ready to cry out to God, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Whenever your spirit is down enough to where you know you can't do this on your own, you cry out to God. He who believes will be saved. And justification can happen anytime, anywhere. Judgment happens at the end of time. One event, publicly, Bucket A, bucket B. By faith in justification, we receive righteousness. So when we get justified, 2 Corinthians says, He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Meaning, in that moment, we are covered by Jesus. So now in God's eyes, we look like Jesus. Weird, yes, but that's the reality. Not literally like, kind of looking like Jesus. Your deeds, your actions have been covered. We're in judgment according to works. Now looking back on our life, God is going to hand out rewards and or punishment. 
levels of punishment even, levels of rewards. Jesus, when he's going to the cross, he says, your sin's not as great as the one who sent me here. Woe to him. Meaning, there's going to be levels of this at the end. Only the elect, God's chosen, receive justification. Those he called, later on in Romans we'll see, God calls you, you respond in faith, you're justified. That happens to his elect children. Every single human being, I can't say this enough, will face judgment. Elect receive justification, the whole universe and all its people will face judgment. Justification is a free, guilt, free gift removing all guilt. Beautiful. That's why we sing. That's why Dale counsels. Because there's freedom in Christ. And now I'm free. What about sins you do in 25 years? I'm free. All guilt's been removed. Judgment is an event punishing all remaining guilt that hasn't been dealt with on the cross. Justification begins our faith. It's chapter one of our story with the Lord. Redeemed story as his child and no longer his enemy. The last chapter is our judgment before we head off to enjoy eternal bliss with him. Begins our faith, proves our faith. Philippians says Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, meaning even in the process, Jesus is the one doing the work behind the scenes. That's so weird to think about. But it's true, and it calms my heart because it's not on me. Moms, it's not on you. My wife is in the middle of just crazy news with two little boys, and she's pregnant again. And it's just a life of stress and angst, and, but she can rest. I'm going to lose my patience. Christ covered it. Jesus is the substitute in our justification. I'm a teacher. I call subs. They come in. They take my place. Jesus took my place on the cross. What place? My place of punishment, the thing we're talking about, judgment of God. He's my substitute. In judgment, Jesus sits there as the judge. And now he's going to judge evil deeds and faithful good deeds. Lastly, justification gives us peace with God. A little further in Romans, he says, I've been justified, therefore I have peace with God. Our relationship is reconciled. He is good with me now. Not because of me, because of Jesus. Judgment gives us eternal rewards with God. So the God who loves me and is smiling when he sees me will also have gifts to give me at judgment. Smiling, nail pierced hands. Here you go, my son. Does that make sense? So the, the whole of religion is mixing these things up and getting the order all mixed up and trying to do good works for God so that he looks down and says, that's my boy. Here's what, I know you don't think about this, but what is the Bible actually trying to answer? How to make me happy. How to get your kid better. Here's kind of the, the realm of what the Bible is trying to answer. How does God get all the glory he deserves? How does God have his chosen people down on earth doing the work they should be doing? And how does God still get all the glory for all this work being done? It's a tricky deal. How do you set this up? How do you have an army of people going out to do the work, yet you get all the glory, and they still get rewarded for it without stealing your glory? Like, think about that. How would you set that up? Let me tell you. 
I have a kid in youth group, Asher, he had an iPhone, and then he didn't have an iPhone because he dropped it in the lake. iPhones are expensive, I'm guessing, because every 12-year-old has them. I mean, they, we must just be a rich bunch. They're $500, let's say. So Asher drops his iPhone in the lake. <laughs> oh, Dad, iPhone. From that moment, there's two options. Here's what can be done. Asher can say, Dad, I'm going to do everything in my power so that you will buy me a new iPhone. I'm going to get up early on Saturdays, Sundays. I'm going to mow the lawn. I'm going to pull those weeds. I'm going to paint those shutters you never painted. I'm going to change the diapers. I'm going to make breakfast. There's going to be pancakes, eggs, bacon. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do it for a whole year, two, three years. And at the end of that time, you buy me an iPhone. Deal? Deal. That's religion. Asher does all the work. He's so busy with work and mowing the lawn and pulling the weeds that everyone's noticing. Look at Asher. He's amazing. Why can't you be more like Asher? He doesn't cuss anymore. His grades are better. He's so, look at him. He's amazing. Asher! (laughs) Meanwhile, sweet Dan Baldwin over here, who's doing the work to pay for that iPhone, gets forgotten. Scenario one. If you want that, that's called religion. There's lots of places that will teach you that. Here's what happens in the Bible. My iPhone, I've got a problem, Dad, my iPhone. (sighs) Breathe, Asher, breathe. How does he get his phone back, his problem fixed, Dan gets the glory, Asher does the work. Dan goes out. I don't, I got to sell some stuff. I've been saving this guitar for God knows how long I'm going to sell it. It's the couch we first got when we were married, but I'm going to sell it. That china I got from Hawaii, sell it. And he goes in the middle of the night to get an iPhone with the stuff out of his own sacrifice. And he has the iPhone. And he goes to his son, I love you. There's your iPhone. What's Asher do? He gets up, he mows the lawn at three in the morning, he washes the windows, he changes, he makes breakfast out of gratitude for what God Dan Baldwin has already done in his life. His problem has been fixed. Sacrifice made. Problem solved at the front end. Well, what do you do? Ignore your dad? No, out of love and gratitude, you do everything that religion tries to get you to do. That makes sense? That should. Thank you. I didn't come up with that. I came up with Asher and Dan because they're here. But That is Christianity. That is justification judgment. God gets all the glory on the front end because he takes care of it. We work out of gratitude. God gets the glory at the end, and we even get a little thrown in our way. It's amazing. Amazing. It's why we sing. Singing is like trying to say it enough, and you just can't. So what does this say to the people as we work back through our group? Non-Christian hoping this is unique, it is unique. That story won't be told in any other religion, any other world philosophy. Everything is going to tell you, you work and you'll get paid. God did the work. Thank you, Lord, I'm going to work. Thank you, Lord. 
And here's a little extra at the eternal reward time. Christianity is unique. There's nothing like it. If you stacked up all the religions, I love talking about religion to people. I just ask questions all the time. What do you believe? Cool. It's interesting. You believe in heaven? Yeah. So you believe there's levels? That's weird. So tell me about that. And you start to ask enough questions. Here's what happens. Every religion just starts to answer the same way. They call their people different things. They call heaven and hell different things. They all kind of come up with some sort of purgatory because the idea of judgment is a God thing, not a man thing. So they like make up this fake little waiting room. We're like, you're, I don't know what your good deed in a waiting room is, like putting the magazine back. Heaven, woo! <laughs> he put good housekeeping back where he picked it up. Eternal bliss. This is unique. Non-Christians that think all religions are the same. They're not. I hope I've proved that. That's Christianity. You go ask around, see what you come up with. Christian, this is where my heart is. This is where my wife lived for many years. Christians with a works-based theology. You can lose your salvation. It's on you. You are saved by grace. Kind of. Here's what I'd say to you. As you think about your kids and how much you love them. I got two little guys and hopefully a third guy on the way. (laughs) I try to think about what it would take for them to lose my love. And I can't think of it. I played baseball with a guy who got into the bad scene, got into drugs, and actually murdered someone. And from time to time, I just find myself thinking about not him, but his parents. And they love him. And they go visit him. And they bring him snacks and books. And they adore him. Here's what I'd say to you, works-based people. We're all parents are in that same camp. If you can love your kid through that, and you're going to bring God down below your level on unconditional love and say, that's bold, to say the least. Incorrect, but bold to say, my love is unconditional. God loves me only so much. My salvation is based off how well I can perform. His love for me is based off how I can perform. I'm just waiting for the moment where God, I don't like that. I'm out. And walks away from you. Never going to happen. For you gospel-centered believer, you're the most troubled by this because all of life is all for Jesus, gospel-centered, yada, 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 you get it. We talk about Jesus a lot here. And now I'm talking about you doing stuff. How does that reconcile? How do you do that? I'd say this. It says, seek for glory, honor, immortality. Seek glory. The fullness of God. Honor, the fame of God. And immortality, a future with God. Keep seeking those things and they will be given unto you. What do the rewards look like? I don't know. We could take the smartest people in the room, smartest people in every church and ask, what specifically is my reward? Is it a cupcake? Some people would say it's stuff. Some people it's like a capacity to love and enjoy God in eternity. Probably a little bit of all of that. But there's some rewards based off how you seek for the Lord here and now. You seek after him. He's watching. Verse I always tell my wife as she's in the middle of the third poopy diaper and it's 6.45 a.m. You keep persevering. 
In due time, you will reap what you've sown, God says. You keep at it. He's watching, patiently doing good. You keep at it. We get this? Justification and judgment aren't the same thing. They're the bookends of a believer's life. Judgment's going to come to us all. Some of us skip this chapter on justification when we're going in on our own. That's frightening. Last verse here. Go to verse 11. God's judgment is coming. It is going to be comprehensive. Our works will be laid before him. And lastly, it's complete. Verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality. God is not going to look at you and your heritage and your job and what family you came from, what background. He is going to look at you without any sort of motives. If you think uh, Lady Liberty is this idea, Lady Liberty, I Googled it, and there's images and statues all over the world about the idea of liberty that the Romans think they invented, that Plato thinks he came up with, and it's, she's always blindfolded, ready to perform justice, because she doesn't care who you are, she cares what you've done, and that's what this judgment is about. I don't care that you're a pastor, let's talk about what happened. I don't care that you're Jewish. Let's talk about your works. I don't care that you went to the same church for 55 years. Let's talk about your works. He is blindfolded, and he is going to look at our actions. This is intense. We're all partial. As a parent, I see that. I would give my son a free pass. God can't do that. He's without partiality. He is blindfolded. How do we end this thing? God's judgment will be final. Let me just be real clear on the gospel. And then we'll close out. There's books with everything you've ever done. Somewhere in heaven. Or wherever they're stored. If you were to pull them out, you would not like what you see. And as you pull them out, God surely doesn't like what he sees. And a life lived apart from Jesus. Because as we're going to see as we get to Romans 3, there is no one who does good. No one seeks after God. Apart from Christ, everything we do, even if it looks good on the surface, is tainted with ulterior motives. And God, being a just judge, has to punish that. So what do I do with my book that is full of garbage in God's eyes? There's a passage in Colossians, another letter by Paul. He says, all the deeds done in the flesh have been nailed to the cross. So here's what can happen right now in justification in preparing for God's final judgment. Your life can be handed over and say, God, I know this isn't enough. Please take it. Christ, your finished work, please take this. And the first thing Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. You come to him poor in spirit with a repentant heart, and he will take it, and he will nail your life to the cross. Amen? He's not done. Then he opens up the book of life. Matthew Razzleton. And now his name's in the book of life. And now his faithful, patient, good deeds done out of a heart that's seeking after the fullness and the fame and the future of God are being written down, and he is going to be judged according to, not by these. This is amazing. 
This is the most unique message ever, and that's the way it'd have to be if it was God doing the writing. This is offered to you right now. Judgment is coming. Justification is offered. Let's pray. God, thank you for saving me. I should be more amazed by that more often. I just get into the rut of life. And I get into the rut of workspace theology. And I start to assume that I deserve a lot of the stuff I deserve, and that's not true at all. I deserve your wrath. I deserve your fury. I deserve you turning your back on me. And yet you ran after me, cost you the cross, and now you're waiting for me. And you're going to reward me with good things. God, yet there's another group of people in this room who have according to this passage, been self-seeking, rejecting this truth. I pray that this would stir in them a discontentment that does not go away until they turn to you in faith. I pray that they can't sleep as they think about this. They, they call upon your name, and you say, everyone who calls upon your name will be saved. Amen. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.